All right, Tim Fullman, welcome to the Ace Podcast. How are you? Thanks so much. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Uh, this is my first visit to Alaska, and I am, uh, well, I got good weather, right? <laughs> you did, yeah. Welcome. Glad to have you here, and especially glad to have you on a nice day like today. You know, I like to tell people, I think Alaska is beautiful all the time, but it's really stunning when you get a nice sunny day like we have today. Yeah, yeah. I was getting off the plane, and uh, the guy sitting next to me said, whoa, you got lucky. It's, it's sunny today. Yeah. Um, yeah, really nice too. Not, not humid. I expected it to, if it was going to be hot, be humid because of the, the green and stuff, but it's, it's perfect. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So, uh, man, I, uh, I got your name from Alaska Fish and Game or is that correct? Yeah. The Alaska Fish. Department of Fish and Game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, I wanted to know about caribou and, um, I don't remember who it was, but it was one of the biologists that I talked to, like I talked to three or four of them, but the second one said, Hey, you really need to talk to Tim. He's working on his PhD for caribou right now. Is that correct? So I have wrapped up my PhD. I am, uh, but I am working with caribou. Yeah. I work for a nonprofit conservation organization, the Wilderness Society. And I partner with a number of different groups like the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, the National Park Service and others. And so I believe it might've been Shauna that you talked to. Yeah, Shauna. Yeah. So Shauna, I've been working on some analyses of caribou migration and habitat use and things like that together. Yeah. Awesome. She was great too, by the way, to, to chat with. Great. Um, so you have your PhD in... I do. In... Technically, it's in geography. Um, so my undergraduate and master's degrees are more wildlife-focused, ecology-type degrees. And then I got a PhD in geography to add a spatial set of tools. So I wanted to be able to use spatial data, satellite remote sensing, geographic information systems to represent space use and things like that. And so that geography degree really gave me a tool set and a way of looking at things to ask spatial questions over broad areas and how that intersects with wildlife, animal movement, habitat use, things like that. Wow. That's, uh, that's incredibly insightful for you to think to do it that way. Did, did somebody like uh, say, Hey, you should do it this way. Or is that something that you were like, you know what? I think this would work. Um, yeah, I think kind of stumbled toward it, you know, I don't even think initially I'd realized how much I was really interested in spatial questions. And then as it, I kind of ended up in geography because that's where my advisor um, was housed. And yet looking back on it, I think that was really where I was meant to be because I have had an interest in spatial questions and how animals use their habitat, how they move through areas, how things vary in space and time. And, you know, I've been doing pieces of that from the time I was an undergrad through my master's and my PhD. And now that I've been working professionally, it all has had this spatial lens to it. It's just questions that really interest me is how kind of space use interacts with all these other things. Amazing. Amazing. So uh, it sounds like you have a lot of uh, different interests, especially from talking with you before the podcast. Um, Where would you say your... um, your passion and your strengths lie as far as the areas of study in mm-hmm. the past? Yeah. Great question. I love wildlife and that's what originally motivated this, you know, from the youngest age, I have just been fascinated by animals, especially by large mammals and wanted to learn more about them. You know, I was a kid where on 
Saturday mornings, sometimes I'd wake up and go climb a tree in our front yard and write down, you know, observations about animals that I'd see in a little notebook with binoculars. And, uh, you know, I lived in suburban Southern California growing up. So that was mostly my cat walked by or there was a crow (laughs) that flew by. And yet it's neat seeing how that was seeds that later on I was doing that professionally in Africa saying, okay, here's, you know, these kind of wildlife species that are coming up to the river or moving through these areas. And so from a young age, it was setting interests in these species and learning about them that have carried on to this day. And I think that really was furthered by uh, growing up. My parents spent a lot of time either taking us outdoors, might go hiking or camping, also spent a lot of time in zoos. And so zoos were a super formative part of my development. I volunteered and later worked at zoos for a while. And yeah, just that love of animals and interaction with them has paved the way for a lot of what I do today. Wow. Wow. Zoos. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, How do you feel about zoos now? Yeah. You know, I think when they are managed properly, there's a really important role that I, that zoos can play um, because I think people only want to protect what they love and they only love what they know about and have an opportunity to interact with. And so when done properly, zoos have a really great, um, chance to be ambassadors for species, for what their concerns are and their conservation threats and opportunities for people to get involved and to create experiences for people who grew up in places where they may not have direct access to wildlife to get to have that. So, you know, I said before, I grew up in Southern California, it was very suburban kind of area. And so our opportunities for interaction with wildlife are limited. You know, now my kids are growing up and we have moose come through our yard here in Alaska. We'll have bears on the trails, but that wasn't my upbringing. And so Mm -hmm. zoos were a great opportunity for me to get to interact with and be in close proximity to a variety of different wildlife species and to learn about them and to be captivated with a desire to not only learn more, but also to work to see them protected, which have influenced a lot of where I'm at today. Yeah, that's a great way to put that because someone who's not looking at it from that lens would say, oh my gosh, they're in captivity and they shouldn't be there. They should be in the wild. But when you put it this way, I mean, like like you said, if managed correctly, zoos can be very informative, especially to a young mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, first thing I thought of was Brooklyn, like mm-hmm. the Brooklyn Zoo, right? A kid that's growing up in a concrete jungle and uh, he gets to see lions and who knows? I mean, he could grow up to be like a, a biologist just from, just from that. So that's really interesting to look at it that way. Yeah. So I'm, you just said you, you worked in Africa? I did. I did. My graduate work was in Southern Africa, mainly in Botswana, a little bit in Namibia and South Africa, working with elephants to understand impacts on the environment, movement, habitat use, things wow. like that. Elephants. Elephants, yes. For, for how many years? Oh, that was for... I guess about seven total or so, you know, it'd be off and on time actually in Africa versus time in graduate school, teaching and doing classes and other things like that. Wow. That's amazing. Um, I I didn't even want to talk about elephant or I didn't know that I was going to talk about elephants today, but now, I mean, can you tell us about elephants, even though this is about caribou? (laughs) Sure. Um, yeah. What do you want to know? I mean, they're really incredible creatures. We're talking about the largest land-based animal alive today and animals that 
are incredibly important in the environment. I mean, we call them keystone species because they have an impact that goes beyond just the effects of any one elephant, which for something as big and powerful as an elephant are impressive in and of itself. But these are animals that create habitat for other species that change the way plants are across the landscape and can potentially make more food available or less for different species. And so there were all kinds of amazing questions that we were asking about what the impacts of having, in in our case, large numbers of elephants in a given area were for plants, for the animals that rely on them, you know, things like that. Yeah. Uh, when you first started working with elephants, um, what was like your first impression other than how big they are? Mm-hmm. Are they, are they, in t- are they really smart? Are they emotional? Are they, um, is there anything that just kind of blew you away? Like, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, well, it's yes to all the above. I mean, they are very smart. They are, uh, very social animals. You know, they live in these female-led groups by an older matriarch, and often they're related groups where you'll have the matriarch, you'll have some of her offspring and their offspring and so on in this multi-generational group, and they're using this intelligence that they have accumulated over time, and so the matriarch she'll remember things. They'll go back to areas where food is available or in dry years, they might go back to a water hole they haven't visited in a while. They'll do different things. And and they know what's going on around them uh, in different contexts. You know, the area that we were in had some areas with hunting, some areas that didn't. And the elephants knew they, you could look at the information from collared elephants. See, they'll kind of walk right up till they get to the boundary of a hunting area. Then they'll run through it to the next side and then they'll kind of walk again. Wow. And so they know how to respond. And then you know, just being out in Southern Africa, watching the babies playing together, the moms interacting with them, watching how they react when a lion walks by or something else happens. It's really incredible to see these animals. You know, again, as much as I love zoos, there is something very different about being out in their natural habitat and having these broader spatial areas that they can move across. They're interacting around and yeah, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, uh, that's that comes from an elephant never forgets, like the jung, Jungle Book, right? Mm. Um, did you study anything about like their brains and and why that is that they're like that? Yeah, I didn't directly work with kind of memory questions or their intelligence. There definitely has been work that's been done around memory capacity and other things like that. Mm. Um, and yeah, they've got really impressive capacity for problem solving, for memory and retention, for all kinds, individual recognition, you know, then emotions that accompany that. But yeah, it's not something that I directly worked with. I see. I see. Is there a species that, um, I mean, I, I don't know if it would be the lion or, or their, uh, their, let's say their, their adversary. Is there an adversarial species in, in Africa for the, for the elephant? When full grown, there are very few species that can tangle with an adult elephant. Um, Lions are the main uh, exception to that, and even that's rare. But there is a part of Botswana called Savuti that we worked around where lions do sometimes hunt elephants, especially in really dry years when there aren't as many other resources available to them. They'll get into big prides and and hunt elephants. Not something that I ever witnessed, Mm -hmm. but even with that, you see that elephants still are reacting to lions on the landscape. And I think that's especially when they have younger calves because their calves are at greater risk. And so I can remember times where, you know, I saw a mother and baby elephant walking around all of a sudden her ears go up, her trunk goes up. She's looking around really alert, making noises. And then we saw some lions walking by. And so she Mm. was watching him, making sure her calf was okay. Um, 
So yeah, yeah, it's definitely still something that elephants are very much responding to. Yeah, the lion. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So uh, parallels in behavior, and we'll just kind of ease into the caribou now. (laughs) Um, Wow, so crazy we talked about elephants. But um, the parallels in their behavior, um, have you seen any from studying caribou? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it was an interesting transition moving from elephants to caribou. Um, it wasn't something I'd necessarily planned. I kind of stumbled into it and really was looking for jobs post-graduating with my PhD and saw an announcement for someone to look at ungulate movement in uh, the Arctic. I thought, well, I don't know much about the Arctic or about caribou, but I know a bit about animal movement and techniques, so let's go ahead and try that. And it's been fascinating to see how even though the system's very different, the creatures are very different, the kinds of questions we're able to ask, the kinds of technology we're able to use, and even some of the issues have overlap. You know, you have a species that is occurring in large herds, bigger often in the case of the caribou that I work with than the herds of elephants. But nonetheless, these herd animals, they're moving across large areas. And so they're impacting the environment as they do that. And so then there are questions about, okay, what happens with these large herds that are interacting with people and that people rely on, they're interacting with their environment. How do we manage and think about conservation for these species? And so I I have been surprised by some of the connections there. Even if the biology of the species is different, there still have been some interesting parallels between my work in Africa and my work in Alaska. I see. And what made you want to make that transition? I used to say you kind of saw the ad and you said, hey, you know, I think I'll, I'll try that. Was there something that... Um, or were you like just, hey, I'm done with elephants or like you've learned as much as you wanted to there and then did you want a different environment or was there something about caribou that you're like, you know what, I've always wanted to study caribou? Yeah. No, it definitely wasn't that. Um, I mean, I loved working in Africa. I still love and miss African work. Um, it really came down to job opportunities and kind of where to go to apply the tools and questions that I'm doing. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like I kind of stumbled from a track where I was, I was thinking I wanted to go kind of to a research academic type position where I'd be doing teaching and research. And there's still a lot of things about both of those that I like. And I, I sort of say that I stumbled into working for a conservation nonprofit organization. And yet it really has been a great fit for me because I'm still able to do research when possible, though not as often as I might like, I still am able to do guest lectures and other little bits of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to do conservation work, or I guess research that is applied toward conservation. So working for an organization like the Wilderness Society, I am able to do research on caribou that is very management relevant and to work with agency partners and other partners who can take and directly apply that and to work with colleagues where even though I try to be very careful not to engage in the kind of lobbying advocacy side of things. I work with people who do and are very skilled at that. So I can say, well, here's what we now know about the science on this topic and what some of the implications might be. And they can take it and say, and now because of that, X, Y, or Z should be done. And they can go mm. and lobby the government for that. So I don't have to engage in the lobbying side, but can learn about the animals, share knowledge about them and see that used to help support conservation. So it ends up being a really nice balance of how that's ended up working out. I see, I see. So as a scientist, um, have you seen any, I mean, you're talking about politics, have you seen anything that uh, the public needs to know? I mean, you work for a conservation society. Um, are, Are they either endangered? Is there, are there, 
you know, what are the challenges for caribou right now? Yeah, great question. So worldwide, caribou, and I should say caribou and reindeer are the same species. Rangifer tarandus is what we call it in scientific nomenclature. And so they occur across the Arctic. So we have them in Alaska. They occur throughout Canada into Greenland. They occur in northern Europe and throughout Russia, Um And all around the globe, it's one species with kind of different little subspecies, variants, things like that. And many of those populations are in pretty sharp decline. In some cases, very severe, 85, 95% of populations Hmm. in decline. And so there are definite concerns about these herds of caribou and reindeer that are relied upon by people that are important for the environment and what might be happening with them. And in Alaska... For a while, it had seemed like for at least our big uh, migratory northern, we call them barren ground caribou herds, that maybe they'd skipped out on that, that we had big, fairly stable populations. They were doing okay. But more recently, um, there have been greater concerns. So my work primarily is focused on the western Arctic herd and the Teshekpuk caribou herd, which are the two northwestern most herds in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And the western Arctic herd used to be the biggest in the state. It had about 435,000 individuals as of the early 2000s. Uh, Last year, they did a count and they were down to 164,000, which is the lowest number since the seventies. And so, you know, 164,000 is still a lot of caribou, but it is much lower than what we have seen in the not too distant past. And so with that come concerns because caribou don't necessarily migrate as far as their population decreases, which means they're not covering as many parts of their range, um, bringing food resources for wildlife, bringing nutrients and altering the vegetation. And also for the people that rely upon them. And, you know, many Alaska native groups have relied upon caribou and had a relationship with them from time immemorial for thousands of years. Um, There's really big implications if the caribou no longer are coming through their area or if there are uh, lower numbers. And so the opportunities for subsistence harvest are reduced. Hmm. What's the reason for this? Yeah, that is the multi-million dollar question. And it's one that is unfortunately really challenging to pin down exactly what's going on. Um, you know, in part, we know that caribou populations do cycle, they go up and down. And so we see some natural fluctuation. There have been some studies that link that with uh, bigger climate patterns like El Nino or other kind of ocean oscillations, you know, kind of big climate patterns. But on top of that, there are other things that may influence. And so one is that as the Arctic warms up rapidly, um, we are seeing an increase in the number of rain on snow events in the winter. So instead of it just getting cold and snowing, it'll actually warm up enough that things will melt and freeze or rain will fall and will freeze. And that creates these thick ice layers that caribou then can have a really hard time digging through to be able to access the lichen and other species that they mm. rely on in the winter when things aren't growing. Mm. And so you can see really big mortality events in the caribou herds um, if you have too many of these kinds of, of conditions. And then, you know, there's other things talking to local people, they'll mention predators and the role that they have when there's large numbers, then subsistence harvest or other types of harvest aren't going to have much of an impact. But as you get to smaller numbers, uh, that could start having an impact. And so it's probably not one item. It probably is a variety of different things. And then human development and other impacts also are increasing the Arctic, you know, 
I wouldn't say that's the exact cause of what's going on with the Western Arctic herd, but across the global range, there are concerns that as you have more human impacts, caribou may not be able to react or respond in the same way that they have in the past. I see. The, the, that herd that's dropped from 400 and, and some to 100 and some, um, is that the biggest drop of the herds in Alaska? Is that, or is there another herd in Alaska that you know of? I know these are your yeah. two specialties, but is there another one that's in greater danger than that? I, c- I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, well, so we have had some other herds uh, further south in Alaska that also have seen big declines. And I, for those ones, I can't quote you the numbers off the top of my head, so I can't tell you. But there I do are, know yeah. in Canada, they've had some big herds, one that was bigger. It was somewhere around, I think, a million individuals and now is down... I want to say it's in the like five to 15,000 range. So like a tremendous drop in that population uh, up in Northeastern Canada. That's insane. And do they know why? It's the same kind of thing where it's probably a combination of a lot of different things working together. It's, it's not easy to just pinpoint it to one cause. I see. Yeah. Historically, do you know those numbers or close to those numbers? Have they ever dipped down this low and then popped back up? So back in the 70s, numbers were low. We didn't have the same kind of uh, counting techniques that we do today, um, which is partly a technology thing. You know, now they'll go out and I could talk about this in more detail if you want, but they'll go out in airplanes and they photograph as much of the herd as they can and get an actual pretty good count of where the numbers are at. In the 70s, it was a little bit rougher uh, techniques that were used for some of that. Um, but yes, the herd was definitely, it was low in the 70s and it did rebound. And so that's where the question becomes, we know that has happened in the past, but with a changing climate environment, with increasing pressures from development and other sources, are we going to be able to see the same kinds of rebounds that have been seen in the past or not? And in some ways it's an open question that we don't know what Mm. the future will hold. And so that's why with an organization like the wilderness society working to continue to protect large intact areas for caribou to move across and continue their uh, kind of behavioral patterns as much as they can is something that we work really hard with. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Uh, and thank you for that, mm-hmm. your service in that. Um, wow, I did not know those numbers. Um, if you ha- if you were pressed, you know, uh, gun to your head <laughs> type of thing uh, from a politician, they were like, you need to tell us the main reason. Uh, what would be your at least hypotheses? Hmm. Yeah, so as a scientist, I don't do very well at that. Um, and so I don't know, even with a gun to my head, it may not uh, come across well. You know, I, again, I don't think I could give a main reason. I think I would go back to what we said before. I mean, I think that a warming climate and rain on snow events, I think that mm. other environmental changes, be they due to humans or other sources, um, all may well be having an impact. And so... Yeah, it's probably so, probably a number of things. So so climate, more than anything in, in your estimation? Again, I don't know that I could say it's more than anything. It's something that we have a pretty good sense that it is having an impact. Right. And so in a system where, you know, we're talking about some very remote areas where it's really hard to get really fine scale information about what always is going on with mm. these animals. But as the pieces come together, you know, we're starting to see that, impacts from a change in climate are happening multiple times of the year. So it's not just winter icing, like we said. You're also seeing as things get warmer, insects like mosquitoes are coming out earlier. And in some cases, that means they're coming out in a period where caribou aren't 
necessarily changing their behaviors. So they might be coming closer when the calves are coming out and being vulnerable. You know, mosquitoes can take up to four pounds of blood from a single caribou throughout a year. There are trillions of mosquitoes up on the north slope of Alaska. And so they can have a huge impact. They are a major driver of where the caribou go and what they do at certain times of the year. And if the period in which they are being um, harassed by mosquitoes is increased, there could be implications to that. Now, again, we say could because we don't know yet. It's things mm -hmm. that kind of continue to be looked at. I see. I see. Yeah, that upsets me, the whole mosquito thing um, and the tick thing. Mm. Um, Lee Cantor, um, uh, the moose biologist for, for the state of Maine, uh, went on this like half hour rant on ticks that mm. just really upset me about like how it's they're so difficult to control mm. those those types of things. Now, as a biologist, you would know more than me as far as the, you know, the usefulness of a tick mm -hmm. and the usefulness of mosquitoes or, you know, everything has a use. But it seems to me like, I mean, I've heard stories about these mosquitoes, how they harass these herds of caribou to where um, they could, I mean, couldn't have like, couldn't mosquitoes kill caribou? Is, is that, or close to it? Like, is that true? It, I think they could definitely weaken, you know, between mosquitoes and the warble and bot flies and things like that, they could definitely weaken an animal, which might make it more susceptible to predation or might make it less able to survive. I mean, again, possibly. Possibly, um, yeah, yeah. I, he's he's told me stories about the ticks and how they they take down calves mm -hmm. like it takes you know thousands and thousands of ticks can t can take a, a calf down, um, and yeah. So that, uh, is there a mosquito um, remedy, <laughs> or is is it or is is it even that big of a problem? Yeah, I mean I think what's important to remember with that is that mosquitoes and flies are a natural part of the environment for these species, and they are something that. The species has been living with for a very long time. And, you know, for the fact that we can look at things and, you know, view it as harassment, there are parts in which, you know, that keeps animals moving and it moves them across the landscape. Mm. It does different things that could be viewed as beneficial from a different lens. Maybe for that individual caribou, it's a problem. And trust me, I don't love getting bitten by mosquitoes any more than anybody else does. Mm. But from a standpoint of, you know, the impacts that can have on the environment, there can be benefits from that. So for example, I was at a meeting in Wyoming earlier, I guess we're in a new month last month, um, where they were talking about mule deer and other species in Wyoming and how the mosquitoes and other insects, they will drive, uh, these deer up to higher elevations to try to escape. Then they come back down as the mosquitoes go away. And similarly, we see caribou responding where, when it's really, uh, buggy out when there's lots of mosquitoes or flies, they will go to the coast or mm -hmm. they'll go concentrate on ice patches and other things like that. And so it changes up the way they're using the landscape, which actually can potentially be beneficial to the environment as a whole, even if it's hard for that animal. The tricky thing is when humans alter the environment to the to a stance where, you know, you're getting longer periods in which the mosquitoes are present or other things like that. That's when you might start having more concerns about what impacts that's having, um, on the species. I see. Yeah. Um, oh, that's super helpful because, you know, from a, a person who, who knows nothing, we just see mosquitoes quote harassing mm -hmm. and I see the ticks, you know, doing their thing sure. and it upsets me, you know, as a, as, as a, you know, a person who loves wildlife and hunts and that kind of thing. Um, so, so that's very, again, insightful to know like, okay, so it moves the animal, you know, and, and in that vein, the migration itself, 
we always hear about the care the quote the caribou migration mm-hmm. what is that and and what what are, i know that's moving but yeah. where, where are they moving from to and why and that yeah it's a great question and it's one that is a bit more i feel like you're going to hear me say this a lot but it's a bit more complicated than we might like to think you know people might think of I guess classic scientific migration is kind of back and forth movement between seasonal ranges. So you go to one area, say for calving and summer use, you then migrate to another area in the winter and back again. And that generally is what we're talking about here. Um, We're talking about caribou herds that have a really high fidelity. They tend to go back to the same calving areas year after year. So they go back to that calving area. They then tend to, uh, Well, shortly after that, the calves are born, you go into what's called the post-calving season, where they spread out and they eat a little bit, they kind of wander around, then the bugs get really bad. And so because of the mosquitoes and flies, they will go concentrate, like I said, in coastlines on gravel bars, snow patches, things like that. Mm -hmm. Then they spread out to eat. But all that is kind of within that general summer range. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you get the migratory period where all of a sudden they start making much more directed movement. So it's not, they haven't been moving. I mean, actually caribou move all year long and their highest movement rates actually occur during that insect period when they're moving back and forth Mm. on windy days or when it's cooler and the insects aren't as bad, they'll go to eat where they can. And then they might go back to insect relief habitat, like those gravel bars, coastlines, uh, when they, don't. But then all of a sudden there's this kind of shift in their behavior and you start seeing these long, more linear movements where they're traveling to the winter range. And so they move to the winter range and then they slow down again. And and we can still see fairly substantial movements during the winter period, but it's a lot less than what's seen in a lot of the year. And and then they stay there throughout the winter. And at some point in the spring, they start moving back. And so then mm. you see the pregnant females, especially they will migrate quickly and in much straighter lines heading up to the calving grounds, the non-pregnant females and the bulls, they tend to go more slowly, kind of meander their way on up because they don't have that same pressure to reach the calving grounds by the time calving mm. happens. Um, and so that's what we're talking. We're talking about this kind of back and forth movement, summer calving in summer range, moving to winter range and back again. But it's movement all year long. And a lot of the research I've done is trying to characterize, okay, let's look which animals are migrating, which ones are resident. They don't migrate at all. They kind of stay in one area year round. And where do you get these in-between strategies? And there's a lot of in-between. It can be tricky at times to detect when did this animal start migrating? When did it stop? Which is something I'm looking at to understand, okay, how do these patterns of timing change? What drives those patterns? All that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's it's complicated. Caribou are a really variable species. Hmm. So that's a good point. Um, I don't know if you in your research if, if you found this out yet, but w- why is that? Why do some stay? Why do <laughs> some? Why are there some residents? And then why would some kind of stay in the middle, like you said? Yeah. And then who, the, who like, who are the ones that female led, obviously, because of the calving, right? Female led mar- migration. Like, have you found that out in your research? Why some stay and why just some just maybe travel halfway? Is that, is that what you were saying? Yeah. So it's ongoing work that I'm doing right now. Um, so hopefully I'll have a better answer soon. You know, <laughs> others who've looked at some of these questions with other herds, um, And with other species, again, you know, down in kind of Wyoming and Montana and beyond, they've looked at that with some other species where they can see different costs to migration and residency. You might have a higher risk of being killed on roads if you're migrating because you go and you interact with more things, but you might get access to better food resources. Mm. Um, 
with our herds, I think one of the big questions is, does whether or not you have a calf make a big difference? Does it relate to what kind of food availability you had during the summer and thus how much you can build up your condition? Um, does the age of the animals matter? And that's all the kinds of things we're looking at right now. So yeah, mm. hopefully in the coming months, I'll have some better answers for some of that, but that's ongoing work we're doing right now. No, that's great. That's great. As I mean, asking about research that's happening right now is like, you, you, uh, you probably won't get a concrete answer, right? <laughs> um, so you mentioned mule deer. Um, have you seen, I'm sure part of your, and I'm just being, it's my assumption here, is that you you chat with other uh, scientists uh, that study ungulates and their migration. Have you seen a, um, might, this might be a silly question, but I'm sure that there's similarities between the two migrations um, and, and w whether it's mule deer or other ungulates, have you seen kind of like, a, oh, okay, this is why caribou are doing this is because they're exactly like mule deer like in this way. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely similarities with all kinds of different ungulate migrations and there are distinct differences. And, you know, that's one of the things with caribou where we've seen with mule deer, there's been some really great work that has been done talking about how they, they call it surfing the green wave. Basically as things green up in the spring, the animals are able to often follow along with those greening conditions and migration actually serves to let them stay at kind of the peak available nutritious food as they move along. And what's interesting is for caribou, we don't necessarily see that. Um, these females seem much more to be driven by getting where they need to go by the time the calves are going to be born. And so often they will get up to the calving grounds and there'll still be snow on the ground. Hmm. And so then they'll have their calves and their calves are usually born shortly around the time when the new vegetation starts coming out and they are able to start eating that to help provide for feeding those new babies. Um, but it's, it's not exactly the same, but in terms of, you know, general migration processes and movements and things like that, yeah, there's a lot of similarities in different species and there's a lot of things that can then be done looking across different species, comparing what kind of patterns there are, what similarities and what differences and what we can learn about protecting those species. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not that you, you know, mule deer is not your specialty, but would you say that mule deer are more driven by feed versus uh, caribou more uh, driven by the calving grounds then? Yeah, I don't know that I'd be able to really kind of say one way or another, you know, one more. That's probably just reflects my lack of experience with mule deer and all that. But yeah. it has, again, the research I've looked at seems like that food availability piece is a big thing that is going on there. Yeah. Um, at least in the spring. Yeah. I know that the mule deer, they travel pretty far too when you're in the lower 48 anyway, where, I mean, there's not, is there caribou? There's not caribou in the lower 48. Not anymore. There used to be. Um, and the last ones were pulled out of the Selkirks in Idaho. I want to say it was back around 2015 or so. It got down to such a small population. They were only at a few animals. And so they pulled them out, moved them up to Canada to uh, move them with some animals up there hopefully to get a slightly bigger population try to breed them up and yeah and make sure that those populations stuck around and so that was the end of caribou in the lower 48 um at least yeah in a u.s context i see were they historically were they introduced at some point into the selkirks i don't think so i believe that was a natural kind of 
colonization movement through that area and other places. I think they used to occur down into Maine and elsewhere, but again, mm. I'm not quite as familiar with what their extent used to be down there. I see. Do you know why they didn't do well in the Selkirks or what was happening there? I don't know the specifics of the Selkirks. I know that across much of Canada, they have had a variety of issues with um, logging, with uh, seismic exploration for oil and gas, with mm -hmm. other things like that that have modified the environment in mm -hmm. a way that affected those species and then also that opened it up so that more predators were able to come and wolves are able to move along those seismic lines and travel faster and interact with more caribou. As moose populations went up in response to more food availability in some of those areas, that supported larger populations of wolves or other predators, which then could predate on the caribou. And so kind of a variety of things have influenced this the situation for caribou in Canada. And I think in the Selkirks as well, as is my understanding. But again, definitely not something I'm super familiar with. Sure. Yeah, I read um, in preparation for you, I didn't know too much about caribou, but I read that they have two coats or like double coated. I'm, I'm not sure mm -hmm. what that means, but it, from what I read, it's, it seems simple that they just have two co coats. And um, so they are more apt to like an Arctic type of um, or a very cold environment. I was just wondering if that maybe it was just too southern for them or what if if they just they're just that type of animal that belongs in that tundra is it taiga tundra taiga region yeah tundra we usually call it tundra up here taiga more in kind of Europe Russia things like that I but, see mm -hmm. yeah so that was that's why I was wondering about the whole Selkirks and then you mentioned um, predators uh, the Wilderness Society uh, it's a con 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 <laughs> conservation uh i don't know <laughs> Just, i couldn't say that word mm -hmm. but a conservation group um do, do you deal in predators here too Is yeah little... so i guess two things first on your first point you know caribou they do really well in arctic environments but they actually occur in a wide variety of habitats so like here in alaska we get caribou over a large proportion of the state, everything from up at the farthest north reaches of the state up on the Arctic coastal plain and all the way down into little populations out in the Aleutian Islands or here on the Kenai Peninsula near Anchorage where I live um, and beyond. And so they can occur in a wide kind of variety of habitats. Um, but you're right, they do have hair that is specially designed for dealing with the cold. Caribou actually have uh, hollow um, hairs with air pockets in them, which helps to provide insulation just like, you know, a Yeti mug or something like that might do. Mm. Um, and also ends up serving kind of like a little life jacket. So the caribou actually float, which is really cool. It's something that the biologists have used as they go out and put collars on caribou for a long time with the Western Arctic herd that I mentioned before, they were able to go to this place that where the caribou had swum across the river for thousands, tens of thousands of years. And mm -hmm. the local people knew that they go and they harvest the caribou there. Well, the scientists picked up on that. And so they would go and, and they would come up alongside in boats as the caribou were swimming and they could actually just grab onto the caribou and put collars on them. And so there was no wow. need for nets, no need for drugs, anything like that. And they instead were able to, uh, take advantage of these buoyant hairs that let the caribou kind of float along, keeps them cool by staying in the water so they don't overheat because of those hairs. They do overheat very quickly and they're able to put the collars on them. So it's this really cool system that they used for a long time until recently when uh, the caribou kind of changed up their migration a little bit and 
you know, again, whether that's because of the smaller population or because of the warmer falls and uh, winters that we're having, not totally sure, mm-hmm. but it was a really neat system that took advantage of those cool hairs. No, that's super cool. Yeah. I read that too, the air pockets mm-hmm. and that, and then you mentioned them swimming that they, uh, are their feet webbed? Uh, not webbed feet. No, they've got these big broad splayed hooves though, that are designed to kind of spread out the weight walking on soggy tundra and in snow and things like that. And so they can work well as kind of paddles to swim along. I see. I see. And then like, as you mentioned, the air sacks are mm-hmm. a good flotation device. Now, again, back to the, the, the conservation of the wilderness society and, um, uh, predators you work with, there are other scientists here that work with the conservation of predators as well. Yes, not at the Wilderness Society directly. I see. Um, here we have a relatively limited science staff. So, especially for Alaska, there are two of us. I focus primarily on caribou, and then Jason Lepi, our aquatic ecologist, mainly is working with uh, fish and other aquatic um, kind of questions and issues. So, we have other partner organizations that we work with, like Defenders of Wildlife, who focus much more on predator kinds mm. of questions. That's not something we have done as much ourselves directly. I see, I see. Yeah, I was just wondering about that um, aspect of it, the, how the predators play into the, sure. that ungulate type of uh, conservation, because everybody's conserving, right? We're mm-hmm. all trying to conserve. Right. Um, and who's doing a better job, right? <laughs> so uh, the, the predators or the ungulates, uh, interesting. Um, man, so the, a lot of really good information there. The actual kind of makeup of a caribou, right? So when you see a caribou, you're kind of, uh, I, me anyway, the antler configurations strike me, right? The the their, the fullness. I'm, I'm talking about a bull. Mm-hmm. Is that what you would call it? A male yep. caribou a bull? Uh, just the thickness of their necks and just how they their face looks like with their noses and that kind of thing. You compare that to, they are a deer species, right? They are, so, yes. You compare that to the, the the different deer species. I pressed Lee on this about the nose of the moose and that kind of thing. And he says they got they got to kind of look at you sideways and look at you this way. They can't look at you straight on because of their face. Could you give me kind of like a kind of overall synopsis of the the anatomy? Um, sure. So caribou, I guess. Yeah, starting at the top. Caribou are really interesting in the deer world because they are the only deer species in which both the males and females have antlers. Mm. So all the other deers, it's only your bulls that have uh, antlers. With caribou, there aren't. And so that can make it challenging to figure out, okay, what are we looking at? Is this a bull? Is it not? When you get a really big mature bull, there tends to be a little bit more distinctive antler shape. But to say, well, is that an immature bull or is it a cow or, you know, what exactly are we looking at? Or is it an antlerless bull every once in a while? You get something like that. You know, the antlers are really interesting with these species. And antlers being bone, they're grown every year and they're lost every year. And so every year these animals are growing these big antlers um, or I guess bigger or smaller, depending on the individual. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they're dropping them. And even that is interesting because the bulls, they drop their antlers shortly after the rut. So they use them for fighting with other bulls during breeding and then they lose those antlers. Cows keep their antlers all winter long and then they drop them shortly after calving. And there's been some really neat work that has been done using this different timing of dropping antlers um, to understand 
habitat use over longer periods of time. So Josh Miller is from the University of Cincinnati, and he's done work up in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, where they've gone out in the coastal plain and they've found antlers that they can date back for thousands of years. And because they can identify these are, you know, generally female shaped antlers, they're in this place where there has been uh, calving, we know those were dropped right after calving it, it reinforces the message that has been heard from the indigenous inhabitants of the area saying, yeah, caribou have been using this area for thousands and thousands of years, which reinforces why it's so important and why groups like the Wilderness Society are trying to protect it. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's really neat how the timing of when these animals drop their antlers actually can tell us things about where they go and what they do. And they've actually, they found some bull antlers there as well, which reinforces even though now we don't necessarily see bulls being up in that area much during the rut in the past they may have done that a little bit more and so you can start to get a better understanding of what was happening beyond just what we can observe today with Mm. that so that's the antlers um their noses again you know they've got these really intricate structures inside of them that are important for helping to warm up the air as they breathe. So very cold, very Mm. frigid uh, conditions a lot of the year where they're at in the winter. And so they need structures that help to warm that air up before they breathe it into their lungs. And so they have these really highly vascularized, lots of blood vessels and things going through that to help warm up that air as they breathe it in. um, So it's at a good temperature when it reaches their lungs and beyond. We've already talked a bit about their fur and how neat that is and how that helps adapt them to survive. And then we mentioned their hooves and the fact that these big splayed hooves, they're not only good for swimming, they are good for moving long distances, helping to um, take them across the landscape and be able to travel uh, really all year round. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you for that. The, the antler thing gets me. I, I'm, I'm, my first question is like, why? Why would the, the females have antlers too when all other deer species, uh, there's, you know, just the males have the antlers? Because what I've heard about that is a male who's growing his antlers, this is a bull that's growing big antlers. It's mm-hmm. almost like they're pregnant because they're eating for those antlers, mm-hmm. aren't they? Right, and so if a wo- if a, a woman, <laughs> if a female uh, is not only pregnant and she's growing antlers too, then it's twice as hard for her. Mm. No, or yeah, that- which may relate to the fact that you know they drop their antlers, you know, right around when they have their calves, and so there is this period before they're growing them back, which is right when they're trying to feed their brand new calf. It kind of yeah. highest thing, and again, that is totally me speculating. I haven't studied that or looked into it much. And my understanding is that it's kind of still an open question about, so why is that? Why are the female, why do they have antlers? What's going on? What exactly are they using those for? Is it for better access to food throughout the winter? Is it for fighting amongst other females to be able to get food? Is it for protecting their calves? You know, I've heard different ideas put out there and haven't yet seen here's the definitive answer for kind of why that happens. So mm-hmm. yeah, not exactly sure why caribou are unique among the deer family for that, but it is a, just a neat feature of these animals. Yeah. Have you seen females fighting? Like with, because uh, of course during the rut, the males are fighting right. with their antlers, but have you seen females fight? I them? haven't. I mean, again, I haven't spent nearly as much time out on the land observing these creatures as many others. So it's possible others have, I haven't directly. Yeah, but no, I I haven't heard that. The only ones in, you know, this is a very different context, but over in Palmer, it's, you know, maybe 30 minutes away from here. So they have a little reindeer farm. And so again, these are more kind of domesticated animals, but they were so calm, you know, they described them as dogs with antlers. And it really was like that. We were in there 
this is probably eight years ago now, but feeding them and I was shocked by how much they weren't, you know, they jostle each other a little bit, but they never pushed up against us. They were very calm, even around, my son was probably two or maybe, yeah, probably two years old at the time. And they were really gentle around him. It was really incredible how calm these animals were. But again, that's in a captive situation. Not a lot to say about what it's like out in the wild. Yeah, maybe that's why uh, Santa used them. Right? Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> so interesting. Uh, on that point, domesticated reindeer. Wh- what are they used for other than like you know? This is me again being stupid, mm-hmm. like a petting zoo and that kind of thing. But are they used for th- for things like? Yeah, I, you know. Yeah, I just mentioned yeah. Santa, but Santa used them to pull his sleigh, right? Sure. So, <laughs> is there stuff like that? Uh, yes. And definitely globally speaking. Yes. I think Europe and on into Russia has a long history of domesticated and semi-domesticated reindeer where still the Sami people of Scandinavia, for example, um, will travel around with the reindeer. They're raising them. They're relying on them, not only potentially to pull slaves and transport things as a source of food, be that milk or meat or other things like that. Um, same with the Nanette people in um, Russia. And then there was some training that happened here where uh, reindeer were brought in and some of the Sami came over and helped to teach some of the Alaska Native peoples, especially around the Seward Peninsula, how to do that. And so there used to be uh, big reindeer herds. As the Western Arctic herd increased in size toward that peak of 400,000, the Domestic reindeer herds lost a lot of their animals. A lot of them just kind of evaporated off into the big caribou herds Mm. and kind of went away with those. And so today there aren't very many uh, domesticated reindeer herds here, Mm. Um, though there has been some talk about potentially seeing about bringing things back. But nothing concrete has happened. So, yeah, there's a few domesticated reindeer still up in the Seward Peninsula and beyond. Not huge number or I don't know, huge, not bigger numbers like there used to be. I see. Yeah. Uh, What about their intelligence level? Could they be used for things of like higher intelligence? Um, I'm not I'm trying I'm trying to grasp at something I mean by that, like what I would mean by that, the actual application. But you know, something more than just hurting or uh, like pulling a sled, would they be used for anything else? I mean, do they, are they intelligent? Um, I don't, I guess I'm not, you know, familiar enough to be able to say kind of where their intelligence level ranks among things. Mm-hmm. You know, they are very well suited for the environment that they live in and for being able to survive there. I haven't ever heard them described amongst, you know, the most intelligent, you know, it's, they're different than something like elephants or chimpanzees or dolphins, those other species that we classically associate with really high intelligence. Sure. So again, that's not to say they don't have a wisdom of their own, but it's not the same kind of intelligence we're looking at with some of those other species. I see. Same kind of question I asked Lee about uh, Lee, Lee Cantor, the moose mm-hmm. biologist. I was like, Lee, you know, tell me about the you know domesticating moose and can we use them for anything? And he was mm-hmm. like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, anyway, that I just I don't I have no idea. Mm-hmm. So I I wonder how how smart they are, you know, kind of kind of neat that way. Mm-hmm. Um so uh their main adversary, uh would it be wolves, would it be bears, would it be like what is it as far as uh, predation? Yeah. Depends on the time of year and the size of the animal. So 
Uh, for adults, yeah, wolves and bears are going to be the main predators. You will get wolverine or lynx that'll take down adults sometimes. Mm. Um, but wolves and bears are probably the main two other than humans. Um, and then for calves, you will get wolves and bears that will kill calves. You also get uh, golden eagles will be a problem. Ravens mm. can be an issue. Um yeah, so it depends during calving season. They part of the reason why the big barren ground animals that we work with are thought to gather together into these big groups and have all their calves in a very short time window is to kind of saturate the predator market and to uh, they go up to at least the barren ground herds I work with in northern Alaska. They go up to the coastal plain where there aren't as many predators as you see further south in Alaska, and then they have all these calves in a short amount of time. And that kind of helps dilute the predation pressure, which is different than what some of the more mountain caribou and things like the Selkirk animals and others would do, which is much more kind of you go off individually and have your calves. And yeah, it's a very different behavior for those boreal and mountain caribou than for the big barren ground animals like I work with. Mm, interesting that you mentioned that the boreal, uh, is that a herd or are those more like forest caribou? It's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's more a, subspecies it's kind of like a, a variant of caribou i guess if you will that have kind of a little bit different behavior and and things like that rather than the big the barren ground herds tend to be the ones they make these big migrations big calving ag aggregations things like that i'm not nearly as familiar with boreal caribou um, mm. as I am with that. I know there's a lot of really good work that's been going on in Canada. There's a ton of papers out all about boreal caribou and their issues. Um, it's just not something I've spent as much time looking at because my focus has been mostly on the big barren ground herds. The, because of the migration. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, interesting. I, I I don't know much about the boreal either. They seem like, anyway, um, that they would be more like a like an elk or or like or like... I mean, because elk are in herds too, though, but um, almost like a be behavior is like elk, um, uh, like the calling. Mm -hmm. That's that's one thing I wanted to ask you about caribou. In big herds like that, and not that you would know about the boreal, but I would, uh, you know, my thought is like putting them in that vein of deer and elk uh, and like red stag and that kind of thing where maybe calls, whether it's cow calls or, 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 or bull calls for mating, do you do you know if the those the big herds have those kind of uh, um, do they make those kinds of sounds during during the rut? Do they call do the do the bulls? I don't know if they, you would call it bugle or do they do they call out for when they fight or when they're calling for uh, you know to mate and that kind of thing? Are they uh, I don't know, would you call it auditory? Are they more auditory yeah. animals? So my vocal, understanding vocal, is that the bulls definitely are vocalizing, you know, during the rut, they're challenging each other and doing things. I mean, again, the rut happens kind of well, the herd is on the move in that fall migration. And so it is this funny, it's, you know, very different from the context of some of the ungulates I might've learned about in Southern Africa, where you've got 
these kind of smaller groups or harem situations or other things like that. You've got all these animals moving and the bulls are kind of fighting with one another and trying to push them out for territory, you know, not territory, I guess, because they're on the move, but uh, for access to the females around them kind of as they travel. So again, not something I'm super familiar with, but yes, my understanding is that the bulls do vocalize to one another during the rut as they're competing for the females. I see. Something probably not as important because they're always herded up, I would think. In the same herd? Uh, it, it No, it definitely varies. So there's times where they split out a lot more and other times where they mm. come together. And so you really see them coming together, the ones that are going to have their calves during calving, and then even more so during the insect relief is when you really get these tight bunches, which is partly where, you know, again, we talked about benefits of mosquitoes. One benefit for the scientists is that's when they go out and they do the counts because that's where you get, if it's a really hot buggy day, not a lot of wind, you tend to get these big aggregations. It can be over a hundred thousand animals in one bunch all packed together so that there's less exposure per individual to the mosquitoes. <laughs> and so the scientists take advantage of that to go out to fly over the herd to take high resolution photos that they can then go in and actually count the number of individuals that are there. Mm. And so the time when you most see kind of tight bunching for the bearing ground herds often is during that insect relief. Other times of the year, they may spread out a whole lot more seeking out food availability, different movement paths, things like that. I see. Mm -hmm. Is that how you do your counts uh, of photography? Yeah. So yeah. So the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, they go out, they've got these special planes that are set up that record exactly where the plane is using GPS and then take these, uh, high resolution photos at multiple angles, they can stitch those together and then they're able to create a kind of three dimensional photo map of where they've gone and where the caribou were. And then you actually can zoom in closely and go into software and actually put a dot on every single caribou. And so they get an mm. idea and then knowing how many of the collared caribou, because we have uh, GPS collars on some of the caribou, knowing how many of those were in the animals that were photographed, um, gives an idea of how well they've represented the herd as a whole. And so if mm -hmm. a lot of callers were missed, it wouldn't be a very high accuracy count. If the vast majority of the callers were in photograph groups, you have a really high confidence in the count that was gotten. I see. As far as um, technology goes, I mean, everything is moving so fast um, in our world anyway. Um, as far as research goes and whether it's counting or, re or any kind of um, like, high-tech research is there anything that you're doing that like surprises you now it's like wow we're using ai now to do this like yeah. do you are is there anything crazy that's or that's coming out that you know i think things like that are are coming i mean i think that um you know just the move to the system I just described is a technological advance. So for a long time, what they were doing is they were using film cameras to go out and take these images and they'd actually have to go develop the pictures blown up and manually kind of overlay different pictures to try to figure out, okay, yep, this is this part, this is that part. Okay, did that caribou already get counted or not? And people would sit there with, you know, magnifying glasses, looking at and counting all the individuals. So the fact that now it can be done with GPS to say, here's exactly where that image was taken and with uh you know the digital photos that let you zoom much further in they can now count calves that they couldn't do before because mm -hmm. you can get a finer resolution you can put dots on individuals to make sure you're not double counting you know there's a lot of things with that that have already just in the last three or so years improved the quality of the counts that they're getting and then i think as you move forward 
it is a good question whether or not AI type approaches or things like that are going to speed that up even further, being able to take those images and do the counting automatically. And that's something that I've talked just a little bit to my partners at ADF&G, the Alaska Department of Fishing Game, about. Um, and they've kind of started looking into, but as best I know, there hasn't yet been a concerted effort to see that happen. So that'd be down the road, but there's other places where that's happening. So I was on a PhD committee for a uh, newly minted PhD, just graduated a few weeks ago, and he was using camera traps. These are remote cameras that are triggered. Um, and he had those up across the Prudhoe Bay oil field and on into the Arctic national wildlife refuge and was mm. using them to see how they do a detecting caribou. And, so he used both motion triggers like someone might be used to if you have a game camera that's up somewhere. The animal walks by, trips an infrared beam, and the camera goes off. Also, time lapse taken every five minutes. And he found out in these big open systems, you actually could see caribou much better with these time lapse images because you can see them far away, far enough that they wouldn't trip a signal, but you can still see and detect them on the image. And so there he played around with using AI versus human uh detections and it was really interesting and some of what he found was that in certain contexts ai could be really useful it could filter through a lot of things it could go a lot faster but it wasn't as good for picking up those longer detections from the time lapse images it really does well if things are within the range that a typical kind of motion sensor would pick up and so in some systems like a forest that might work great in big open systems like with the caribou that leads to complications so yeah i mean i think there is great potential for AI to be beneficial in the future, but there's still definitely more work to go to get it there. Interesting. I, that's so fascinating you mentioned that because I just purchased my first two game cameras and um, I was at Cabela's and I had this long, I had, knew nothing about game cameras. I actually spent half an hour out in the parking lot looking at reviews on YouTube, like mm -hmm. which one to get, you know? So I walk, I was just tired of it. So I walk in and I start talking to the the guy at the game camera area and there's a dizzying uh, amount of game cameras. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, okay, I've got two. These are the ones I use. And so we're going through it. And I'm like, okay, um, what about what about this one? And he's like, yeah, that's actually a really good one too, because we're going through my reviews. Yeah. And I was getting ready to purchase one, and I said, you know what? Let me let me just look at that review a little closer. There was a new one that just came out, and whatever model it was, it was the Pro, and it had AI. And supposedly, they, if I'm gonna put this correctly, supposedly it cut down on false. Uh, so I guess with any movement, even if it's a tree or if it's like a squirrel runs by, mm -hmm. it's going to take a picture. So that uses up your battery, uses up your card space, that kind of thing. And supposedly AI was this in this model yep. was going to cut down on 90 percent of false images. Hmm. So it would recognize you put what what you're looking for. I'm looking for elk. Or I'm looking for mule deer. You, you punch that in and that's what it's going to take a picture. Hmm. on. How crazy is that? Yeah. Right. It is really interesting. It is very, you know, I I have a remote camera that I've just used for fun to kind of play with at a friend's house here in town or in other places. Um, I haven't since since my undergrad. Undergrad, I did a little bit of stuff, but that was back with like film cameras and all that kind of stuff. Um, haven't recently been using it research wise, but yeah, it is fascinating to see, and it 
it is interesting. You know, again, as, as a scientist, partly those empty images are some data potentially depending on how they're collected. So like, oh, I wouldn't want to filter all that out. But if your goal is, oh, yeah, I want a motion detector of this particular animal, it is really interesting how the technology is doing it, some of that stuff. And yeah, yeah there's it's a big ongoing thing comparing human detections and AI and crowdsourcing things versus having, you know, scientific experts doing it. There's a lot of neat work that has gone on. I think there's a huge amount of information that's potentially available from remote camera sources and other things like that. Yeah. What I was just thinking as you were talking, why not a satellite that you can put over an area that just counts caribou, right? Like, I know it sounds a little weird, but I mean, it seems like that's where we're going, right? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see as the technology increases. I mean, you need a high enough resolution to pick up something that small, which right now is usually only available in either really expensive kind of commercial products or military products. Sure. Um, and then to task a satellite to stick in a single area is also challenging. But depending on where the technology goes and how we get in the future, I mean, some of those kinds of questions I think are really interesting. I mean, the other question that I've thrown out and talked to some of my collaborators about is, you know, what about drones and what's the possibility of using some of that? Mm. And in our area, the sense that they have had is, look, we're talking about such big areas, it probably isn't super likely. But I was actually talking to a scientist at that ungulate meeting I was at at the beginning of July who works in Kazakhstan. And there they are using these big drones to count migratory species of ungulates and to go out and fly big areas for hours at a time and be able to do some of their counts and their video work and things like that. And so, you know, I think as the technology continues to improve, as batteries get better and lighter, there are going to be more and more opportunities for some of these things to help improve the quality of data that we can get and hopefully to reduce the, you know, risks for human pilots and other things like that. Sure. So. And there are um, like infrared uh, drones out there, like you mentioned, like a military or industrial application. Mm -hmm. There are those out there that that uh, will like uh, count a heat or not count, mm -hmm. but pick up a heat signature. Sure. And if you can pick up a heat signature in that shape, if AI could possibly help you to identify what that is. Right. That's it. That's amazing where we're headed with all that stuff. It's crazy. It's going to be really interesting to see in the years to come what new avenues open up. I mean, even with the kind of telemetry and tracking data that, you know, a lot of my work is based on, there was a long time where it was all VHF based. When I started out, I was doing a project with a grad student as an undergrad working with the American Badger and working with Badgers, you know, we would go out with a VHF caller, be out in the middle of the night and we would have to triangulate locations. You're basically taking a fix. You have to run to the other way to get another <laughs> one to figure out where these animals were. We might locate each Badger once each night. Now with GPS things, you're getting data every hour or two, you know, and you have much finer sense of what the animals are doing. And I think as the technology continues to improve, it's just going to be even more so. And yeah, it raises other questions. How do you deal with, for example, the autocorrelation of the data, the fact that the finer your resolution, the finer together in time and space, you get the points, the more similar the environment is, and you have to deal with that in your models. But the technology is opening new avenues of what we can do. And so in so many different areas, we're seeing exciting new opportunities to collect information and understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, man. You seem really passionate about it, which is awesome. Um, do you, um, from your work, I mean, if you were to look at your, your, 
your career uh, five years from now, 10 years from now? I mean, you look like a young buck to me, so maybe who knows, 20 years from now. Uh, where do you see yourself? Do you, do you see yourself still working? With, I mean, you just mentioned badgers. You were mm-hmm. on elephants a little while ago. Like, you've, you've done a lot. Wh- where do you see your work headed or what's on the horizon for you? Like you're, hey, I've always wanted to do this. Yeah. Is there something that's out there? You know, I think the big thing for me is doing research that matters to support conservation. That's something I've always been interested in. It's something I cared about while I was working with elephants, something I continue to care about and that motivates what I do now. And so for me, that's what is most important. I mean, I like working with big mammals and I hope that continues. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I see this being my foreseeable future, uh, path. Mm -hmm. Um, but ultimately, I want to go where I am led to go and do work that will help advance conservation and and protect the species and the habitats and the people that rely on them. Mm. Are you seeing a problem? Uh, I, I guess the question is, what challenges are you seeing, not just with caribou, because you're obviously seeing the numbers dip down, and mm-hmm. those could come back up. I mean, like you said, it goes in cycles, but it seems pretty low to me, those numbers. Are you seeing anything else that's concerning to you in the body of work that you've done that just kind of bugs you and says, I wish we could solve this problem. I wish there was an issue for this. And, and that could be global warming. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know. Is it is it the climate? Is there something that you're seeing that's like, this is a real big problem? Mm. Well, I, I mean, I do think, yes, that a changing climate is a big problem and is going to continue to have very large impacts on species in all kinds of different systems and on people, you know, we're already seeing that and it's going to continue, um, unless we do make some changes and do things. Um, so yeah, you know, that, that's definitely a big issue. I mean, I think the other thing that really is important is thinking about human activity, human impacts and where, where are we going to do development and, and what's that going to look like? You know, that is a, an ongoing question that we grapple with, that we grapple with here at the Wilderness Society and that ultimately is a big part of why I do what I do. You know, I study caribou in part because I want to learn more about them and understand what's going on. And in part, because I want to understand their movement and habitat use so that as decisions get made about what areas to develop and what areas to set aside, we have the best available information to help support those decisions. And I think there are real questions about where are we willing to step back and not do as much, um, for the sake of the environment and the people that rely on it. So for example, in the Arctic national wildlife refuge, you know, there has been pressure for decades now to see development there because of the oil reserves that are uh, estimated to lie underneath it. You know, I think there's a real question of, look, we know it's really important for the caribou as their calving ground and where they're raising their babies. We know it's important for people who rely on those caribou. We know it's important for a number of other species. Um, are we willing in any places to step back and not to develop, even if there is oil available and money to be made, um, for the sake of the environment, the species, and the people that rely on it? And recognizing that that needs to be done in a way that realizes the impacts on people, both the impacts of protecting the environment, because there are a lot of beneficial impacts, but the impacts of opportunity costs, if development doesn't come in that way, how do we make sure that people are being supported and have an opportunity to live their life, to get the resources they need? You know, you can't just turn a blind eye to the people that are living in these areas. 
And yet also, I think we've seen over time, only pursuing development and economic gain as your highest end isn't going to get us where we need to go or result in a healthy environment and healthy people. Yeah, man. Um, I guess my whole, as you're talking, the only thing I could think about is what we can do. Like what, what can we do as on our level as hunters, as, uh, um, people who love wildlife, who, who are out there hiking, you know, what, what can we do to help? I mean, that's a, a, the, the oil that's a, you know, in some ways that's, I mean, we can vote, but that's out of our hands and a lot of, depending on what administration's in and what, you know, you know, what lobbyists are paying money and like, you know, the Pebble Mine is a great example, right? Um, that's, are you familiar with that? The Pebble Mine? Yeah. Somewhat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, I've, I've heard about that from afar. This, you know, I don't even, I don't even know what the, the status is of that right now, but I heard that that was a big deal as far as the, the salmon migration, right? It was mm-hmm. a, a, you know, if they were to build that or if they're, they, I think they are building it, right? Or they, they were in process of digging to, to, to build it. I, I don't know where they are with it, but I, if, for example, the Pebble Mine is like a really big deal as far as uh, the impact that it'll have on the salmon. Um, so when when you mention that, I my first thought is, I I don't know, I don't, I there's no way I could influence the Pebble Mine <laughs> at my you know who I am. Mm-hmm. But what can we do as just you know your average Joe that's out there, whether it's you know loving wildlife mm-hmm. or, or or hunting, is there anything that we can do other than you know speak with our votes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I think there are things that we can do, and I think you know voting is an important part of that, but it's beyond that too. You know you have opportunities to write to your representatives and uh, legislators to engage at local, state, and federal levels to encourage things that will support conservation and support protecting the environment. And then there's a lot we can do with the actions that we take individually. You know, what you do to be a good steward in your life and in your sphere may not change what happens with the Pebble Mine or the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have an impact. And especially as we do those things and we talk to other people about them, my hope is that will build the kind of groundswell and encouragement that leads to the more cultural shifts that we need if we're going to see things change in the future. So uh, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist, and she wrote a book that I have over there on my bookshelf called Saving Us. And she talked about climate change and the concerns and the impacts there, but she also talked about why she has hope and all the things that can be done. And there are very tangible and practical steps that can be done. And one of the first is just talking to other people and sharing, hey, here's what I think about this. Here's why I'm concerned about these things. Here's why my values and maybe the shared values that we have lead us to uh, care about these things. And as we have conversations like that with friends and family and others, that has the potential to help influence the way that ultimately the society views and thinks about these things, which is what we're going to need if anything is going to happen. So having the conversations, finding shared values and finding ways to connect on things that we care about and and share that message with others is really important. Yeah. And that's got to be on a whole nother level in Alaska when you have the indigenous people here and then uh, the amount of natural resources and whether it's the land and or the, the wildlife here. Um, uh, to your point, um, before we started the podcast, we were talking about, you know, uh, the indigenous people here and how 
I mean, they they rely on these on, on wildlife for sustenance, you know. So, um, coming from Africa, I'm sure that there's you draw parallels there because same kind of thing. They rely on that, uh, th you know, those animals for their, uh, you know, for their families too. Um, the difference between have you seen a big difference between the two? Um, in the African culture versus the culture here in Alaska? Because you didn't know anything about Alaska when you came, right? No, I didn't. Yeah, I'm, I moved up here kind of sight unseen, had never been to Alaska, didn't really know much about it. Um, and so it's been a really great learning opportunity. I've been really blessed to have a number of people who have helped to share their views and their knowledge and their culture you know, I sit on the Western Arctic Caribou Herd Working Group, which is this interdisciplinary group of Alaska Native subsistence hunters from the range of the Western Arctic Herd. I sit on it representing conservationists. There are reindeer herders, there are hunting guides and aircraft transporters. Uh, but we work together because we all care about the caribou. We care about a healthy environment. We care about the people that rely upon them. And so we're able to work together to share information and make recommendations toward uh, sustaining the herd and its environment and its use into the future. And so it's been amazing learning from some of those individuals and from another, a, a number of other individuals who have generously shared about their culture and their connections with caribou, their community reliance on caribou. You're right. You know, there is a food security piece here that is very important, but it's so much more than that. It's more about a relationship with the caribou that goes back to time immemorial back thousands of years out of mind as these people have lived with and relied on the caribou for their way of life in a lot of situations. Mm. And so it is, it's something that, you know, I am still just learning about the depth of the passion for and the knowledge of, and the care about, uh, caribou and their environment. Um, mm. that, yeah, that others have shared a little bit with me. Is it Inuit? Is that what you would refer to as the native peoples here in Alaska? Is it the Inuit people? Or? So there are a number of different Alaska native groups that are here. Um, kind of broadly speaking, up in the northern parts of Alaska, you have the Inupiat people. Um, and then as you move further into kind of the inland areas, you have more Athabascan uh, people, get down to Clinkit and other peoples down around kind of the Tongass Forest, Juneau, Sitka, all those kind of areas, Aleut people along the Aleutian Islands. There's a number of different peoples, and over time, people have obviously mixed and moved around and all. Um, but yeah, there, there are many different Alaska Native groups across the state. I see, but you wouldn't generalize them in, in any one term. I I wouldn't. I see. Uh, there, there may well be, again... <laughs> the, the, <laughs> kind of the sociology side of thing is a bit outside of my wheelhouse, but no, my understanding is I've interacted with uh, various Alaskan people is yeah, they've tended to identify as Anupiat or Gwich'in or, I you see. know, from other areas across the state and other people groups across the state. I see. Yeah. A perfect example is my Uber driver here from the airport. He's mm -hmm. um, from Barrow. Mm -hmm. And I, <laughs> I, he did tell me what he was and I, I just don't, I, it was a word I couldn't pronounce. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't remember what it was, but fascinating culture. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Oh, yeah. I mean, I living in Hawaii and, and living with the, the Hawaiians and or local people, which is just a hodgepodge now. Mm -hmm. um, and then working in New Mexico with the Native American peoples. Um, and then they have their tribes. And then I come here and I talk to you who you've worked with 
obviously, you know, uh, that African culture who's mm-hmm. also had tribes, right? And then uh, now here in, in uh, Alaska, it's, a, it's fascinating parallels that run through all that. You know, it's really interesting how they all use wildlife. I've noticed in every single one of those that I just mentioned how important wildlife is to all those cultures, whether it's conservation and or, uh, you know, food for their families. So it's so it's uh, it's conservation runs the gamut. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and I feel like all the people that I have talked to have this like this. Uh, this respect for it too. And Maine, when I went to Maine, same kind of thing. Those, the people that were, that are native there, they just have this respect for the wildlife, which I just, I just think it's amazing. Um, yeah, I, uh, my, my hat's off to you, man. Like you've, 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 you've had so much experience in all these different, different areas in, in wildlife. And you have, you've, uh, you've seen very seasoned for how young you, you are. Um, can you, from being here, how many years now? Nine years. Nine years from being here. Can you tell me what you've learned from this culture? Boy, <laughs> how much time do we have? No, I mean, <laughs> and there's a ton. You know, I think really just a feeling of awe and respect for the various Alaska Native peoples and cultures and for the the relationship, the knowledge and the ongoing stewardship that they have shown and continue to show for this land and all of its inhabitants for the wildlife and the plants and, and all of its components. And it has been incredible to learn. That's everything from, you know, little bits and pieces that interest me as a scientist. You know, it was incredible how up in Utkiagvik, uh, formerly known as Barrow, um, the, knowledge and in other places up along the northern coast the knowledge about whales and whaling and all that is incredible and there were things that the scientists didn't understand about where the whales were going and what they were doing that led to mistaken interpretations on numbers of whales and all that that had real implications for the people who had their harvest restricted and yet when they listened to the wisdom of the Alaska native peoples saying no actually the animals are doing this and they finally got the scientific instruments and abilities around to be able to learn from it the scientists realize yeah these indigenous people were right all along the mm-hmm. knowledge they have is incredible and the same thing is true with caribou it's one of the reasons why being on the western Arctic caribou herd working group is such a privilege to be able to learn from these people who have relied upon and had a relationship with caribou and have such a wealth of knowledge passed down through generations and so there are all kinds of incredible things that um yeah, that I've just been privileged to learn just a tiny bit about and look forward to continuing to learn about. That's great that you have a partnership with them on, on that board. Um, can you mention it? This would be your third time saying sure. it, but what's it called? <laughs> so it's the Western Arctic Caribou Herd Working Group. I see. Yeah. Okay. It's westernarcticcaribou.net if anybody wants to look up the website for the working group. There's an annual newsletter that the group puts out each year that has information about the herd and its status and a bit about science for the herd. You can find PDFs of that up on the website as well as other information about the herd and the working group in general. That's awesome. And you just had, was it a workshop or a, some, uh, not a, not even a seminar or something? It's like a symposium? We did. Yeah. We um, Back in May, I was part of a group that helped organize the 
2023 North American Caribou Workshop and Arctic Ungulate Conference. It was kind of a combination of two scientific conferences um, that came together with people studying caribou and other Arctic ungulates, moose, musk oxen, doll sheep, reindeer, um, and more around the globe. And so we had about 600 people come together here in Anchorage, and we really were trying to go beyond just a traditional scientific conference. So the theme of the meeting was crossing boundaries, reflecting the fact that not only caribou and these other Arctic ungulates crossed management boundaries, international boundaries, uh, landscape boundaries, but also that the kinds of knowledge that we need to be able to sustain these species into the future are going to cross the boundaries of Western scientific approaches and indigenous knowledge. And so we need to be working together to braid these different ways of knowing and use all these types of information and values, shared values of caribou and other species if we want to see them protected in the future. Um, and so it was a really great time to see people come together, share information, learn from one another and build relationships. Wow. As a doctor, what did you learn? Oh, I learned all kinds of things while I was there. It was great learning not only some of the kind of new statistical techniques and cutting edge uh, approaches people are using, um, you know, hearing some talk about drones and their use about uh, video cameras on collars and how that's letting people analyze what species are eating. Um, but also then hearing the wisdom of elders sharing what they have heard and known for a long time and seeing examples. We had a plenary in which we brought together uh, places where or examples of situations where there had been uh, indigenous and Western scientific collaboration to do recovery work in Canada or management here in the U.S. or, you know, other kinds of projects bringing together knowledge and working together in a way that lifts up all different types of knowledge with a shared goal of protecting the caribou. And so it was incredible learning from many different people in mm. those different ways. Mm. Now, you said it was international, right? It was. Did you have anybody from like Russia or China or... We had 10 countries, maybe actually it might have been 11 countries represented. Uh, Russia did not this year have anybody come. They have come in the past to some of the international meetings, but we had people from, now I'm going to see if I can remember, we had people from the U.S. and Canada, from Greenland, from England, Germany, Sweden, Finland, Norway, um, and some others that I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but people from a number of different countries, as well as from over a hundred, uh, at least a hundred participants from different indigenous organizations and advisory groups, um, other things like that who were represented. And so, yeah, it was really an incredibly diverse mix of people and backgrounds and experiences who came to share about all that. Yeah. I looked into, uh, caribou. At, I mean, just Googling caribou, like to be prepared for you. And then I, Greenland kept popping up. Mm -hmm. they, they have a, a pretty healthy herd in Greenland, right? Mm -hmm. of, yep. of caribou. That's interesting. Same, uh, uh, is it what I call that ecosystem? The same. Similar kinds of things. You're yeah. up at a kind of, well, depending on where you are in Greenland, similar latitudes, you've latitudes, got very right? ice based environment in central Greenland and then, you know, around the coast and other things there. Yeah. There's some definite parallels. Yeah. Now, um, the two herds that you specialize in, um, and this might be a weird question, but the, 
is there anything because you again you always hear about the caribou quote migration mm-hmm. um when you when you think about caribou or when the, that that topic comes up is there anything about this migration um that has human implications like if this might if this migration uh for whatever reason ceases or gets to a level to where it's just uh, almost i want to say insignificant mm-hmm. But what kind of implications does this have for us? Yeah, Um, absolutely there are implications. There are implications for the people that rely on caribou. So, you know, one of the things with caribou migration is that that brings caribou to different communities and to people who rely on the caribou. And so one of the things that I have heard shared from some of the Alaska Native subsistence hunters on the Western Occurred Working Group or in other contexts is that as the migration has become more variable, they're coming later or not at all, people either aren't able to access caribou in places where they used to or they have to travel much further distances uh, to be able to get to where caribou are. And that's a huge economic impact in places where gas might run 9 or $10 a gallon. You know, if you suddenly have to go four times the distance, that has a very real cost in terms of finances and in terms of just safety. You know, as we see rivers breaking up or not freezing as early, there is a risk to human life and well-being um, from that. And so, yes, yeah, so there's a very big uh, kind of harvest implication of changes in migration. And then thinking more broadly, you know, migration and its potential impact with development is big, you know, where projects are going to be allowed or not allowed and what the implications that might be for hindering migration is a big question that has been going on. And so, you know, it's something the Wilderness Society has been engaged in, in multiple places with the willow development that recently got approved up in uh, northwestern Alaska or with the Ambler Mining Road that's been proposed and uh, continues to be under debate, you know, or other questions and issues of what might the impact of possible future development be on caribou and on their movements and migration. And so it's some of why I do the work that I do, trying to better understand caribou migration, the patterns and human impacts so that we can get a better sense of here's what those trade-offs might be. Here's what could happen. And so, yeah, I do my part to try to engage and say, here's what the scientific information represents. Here's what the new science we're working on shares. And then others I work with can take it and say, okay, so X, Y, or Z should be done. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of what you mentioned before you're a scientist, Mm -hmm. right? You gather the data, you interpret it and you just pass it on and say, Hey, this is what I found, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. Uh, switching gears for a minute to like a, um, more, I guess, practical human type of, uh, um, culture in a way standpoint, um, moving to Alaska and being here, uh, you know, coming from, uh, Africa, how is it? I mean, you said you're, you're married. I am. Yes. And kids. Yep. We got two kids, two kids. And Mm -hmm. so you came here, you, you moved your family here. What's it been like? What's what's Alaska like? Because I've been here all of about six hours. Yeah. Great. You've been here for nine years. Like, um, well, in short, it's been great, but 
it definitely took some getting used to. So this is the first place that either my wife or I have lived with snow. Um, we, <laughs> I grew up in Southern California. She actually grew up in Indonesia most of the time. And then, uh, we were in Florida before this, while I was doing the Southern Africa work, I was out of the university of Florida. So yeah, based in Gainesville, Florida, moved straight from Florida up to here. And this is a fair bit different from Florida. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it took a little bit of getting used to, um, you know, even to the standpoint of we moved up here and the first snow fell, things iced up. My wife slipped and broke her leg while she was seven months pregnant with our daughter. And oh so, you know, it it was quite the rough transition to all of that. And yet we got through that and both she and my daughter are okay, which is great. So, <laughs> you know, it ultimately, we love it here. We love the fact that we are in a place that has such incredible exposure to the outdoors. You know, I mentioned earlier, we get moose in our yard and Mm. that's really a neat thing for our kids to see and to experience growing up. We can be at the coast or in the mountains within 10 to 20 minutes. Mm. We can be skiing in the winter on the cross country trails here and biking in the summer, or in my case, biking in the winter. And, you know, it just offers an incredible wealth of opportunities to live an outdoor lifestyle. And then like I've been saying to interact with some really incredible people. Wow. Wow. That's great. So hundred percent happy. You, you no foreseeable like change in the future. You, you love it here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to ever say a hundred percent, you know, especially as even though today doesn't support it as cool and cloudy as this summer has been, there are definitely times when I miss the sunshine and the heat, but no, we, we do like it here. And for now, this is where, where we are and where we're going to be. And yeah. so, yeah, no, no plans for anything else at the moment. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you said you're, you were talking about your wife earlier. She's in between jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, is she, does she work in the same field? No, she does not. Her training is in science. Uh, her undergraduate degree was in microbiology and she used to work in a biotech, uh, for a biotech company doing, uh, HIV cell therapy kind of work. It was really neat stuff. And then when we moved up here, uh, she stopped that because she was seven months pregnant and there's not as much of a biotech industry up here. And so took a few years off. She'd actually worked for our church for a number of years and then just recently stopped that and has been looking into potentially doing more teaching. She's been a substitute teacher some since the pandemic started. That was one of the big needs. Our school said we need more substitutes. So she Mm. was doing that and liked it and yeah, kind of right now is in a transition period of figuring out, all right, is that where I'm called to go moving forward or is there something else? So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's awesome. You mentioned your faith, you're Christian. Mm-hmm. I oh, am. Oh, yes. interesting. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't even know that. That's pretty cool. Um, I'm sure that that plays a big part in your, in your, uh, your family and, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. How old are your kids? Um, yeah, they are eight and 10. So, oh wow! Mm-hmm. Great, great ages too. Yeah, that's fantastic. Do they like it here? They do. Yeah, I they mean, really they don't know anything it. else, right? <laughs> uh, my daughter was born here, and no, so she doesn't. My son was young; he was one and a half when he moved here. So he, yeah, it's most of what he knows as well. But yeah, they really like it a lot. Mm. So, yeah, no, and I mean, really, you know, you kind of just mentioned, yeah, my faith is it's an important part, not just for our family, but of why I do what I do, and it's the reason why I work in conservation is because I see it as a direct connection to an outpouring of my faith. And so that's what leads me to do all the stuff that I do here. What do you mean by that? So for me, you know, as I, so growing up, you know, I mentioned before I 
was really interested in wildlife, grew up loving animals, wanting to learn more about them. Also was raised as a Christian is what I grew up with. And really around sixth grade or so, my faith became my own, started reading the Bible on my own, praying on my own, kind of moving it from just this thing that my parents did to something that really I did. And that has come to influence how I see and experience and interact with the world and everything. But there was a question there because there have been a number of times in which the Bible and Christianity have been used to justify a lot of harms for the environment. So there's a question, okay, I have this passion for animals and for conservation. I have this growing love of Jesus and passion for my Christian faith. How do those two things go together? Are they going to be in conflict or are they not? And as I started reading the Bible on my own, I realized, no, actually, they aren't in conflict. They reinforce one another. I mean, you go back to Genesis chapter one, the very beginning of everything, and you see that humans were given this opportunity to rule over creation. And unfortunately, rule has often been taken to mean to, you know, dominate over it and to subject it to whatever we want. And yet I started asking, well, wait, what does it mean to be a good ruler? What does that look like in the Bible? And as you see, a good ruler, yes, uses, you know, the resources that have been given to them, but also cares for and stewards. I mean, the best example of that is Jesus who gives his life for those he's been called to serve. And so through that, and then I ended up going and kind of reading from the very Genesis to Revelation, the entire thing and seeing, all right, what does it say about animals, science, conservation? And over and over again, there is this call to steward and care for something that doesn't belong to us, that we are here to, uh, do what we can to glorify God through the way that we engage with the things he's entrusted to us, including the natural world. And so for me, living out that call to stewardship and to conservation is a big part of why I became a scientist and why I now work for a conservation organization, because I see that as a direct outpouring of my faith. And so I want to do the best that I can as a scientist and as a conservationist, because I see that as part of how I am living out my calling to steward the earth and to love God well. Wow, man, that's so, great stuff. That's yeah. great to hear. What would you say to, um, I asked my buddy um, Shiloh, uh, we did a podcast, and he's um, he's got a very strong faith. Um, but I, this is something I ask people that, um, that do have strong, uh, you know, um, root in in Christianity. Mm -hmm. What what would you say to somebody who doesn't believe in God um but is um but they're yeah they're a good person. You can clearly see it. You know, you say let's say it's somebody you work with very closely or even a good friend of yours that you know just doesn't believe in God. They just I don't believe in God, but I'm doing a great job as whether it's a wildlife biologist or 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 whatever it is. Like um how uh, not that you're going to judge them, but right. But in, but in the Bible, it says things about people who don't believe, right? Um, is there, is there anything that you would say to, to, to someone like that? Like, uh, um, hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, what I really hope that I would do is love them really well, because whether or not someone has the same faith convictions that I do, it, actually goes back again to that very first chapter of Genesis, this idea that all people are made in the image of God. And so everyone is filled with a dignity and a worth 
that transcends what they believe or even what they do and how they act. And so I may not always agree on all issues. I mean, I don't agree on all issues with all kinds of things. I don't always agree with the choices that I've made at other points in my life. And yet I want to love well, to encourage people, to support them with where they're at, even as, you know, I, I mean, again, I am convinced of the truth of Christianity, so I'm not going to shy away from that. And I'm more than happy to talk with people about that and to, you know, even encourage them in that. And yet whether or not that's the choice they end up making, I want to love them well, be a good friend, come alongside and encourage them, you know, with where they're at. That's what is, you know, really important to me. And so, you know, if, as I do that, they also are attracted to Jesus. That's amazing. And if not, you know, I'm going to keep loving him anyways. Like it's not. Yeah. So I, I really hope it's not coming across as judging or saying, Oh, you know, you need to do what I do or act. You know, I am not the standard here. Yeah. And so I don't want people to think, Oh, I need to act like Tim or else he's going to judge me. I want to love people well, wherever they are at. And yeah. And see what I can learn from others. Cause everybody has things that we can learn from too and look up to. So yeah. And that's what I thought you'd say. I mean, it's just so positive. Like when people mention God and they, the things that they do, it's just, I've always seen it as a positive. I didn't grow up Christian. I grew up Catholic. And um, I mean, you hear about the uh, Catholic priests and the, the, the crappy stuff that they've done or some of them have done. Um, and then um, I got saved. Um, but then I dipped back into those old ways before I got saved too. Cause it's weird. Like, you know, uh, typical Irish Catholic, not that I'm Irish, but a typical Irish Catholic is like, you know, party all week and repent on Sunday. Mm. Right. (laughs) And, uh, but Christians are, um, I've noticed anyway, a lot of my Christian friends are a lot more, um, devout. Mm. Right. And they, they, most of them from what I've seen anyway, live what they preach or Mm. what they say. I just kind of worry or not worry, but I wonder I had, when I did my podcast with Shiloh in Hawaii, mm-hmm. I had a friend call me and say, hey, you should, you should stay away from that religion stuff. And I'm like, why? It was, it was part, it's part of his life, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, they were like, well, it's just kind of off-putting because, you know, for the people who don't believe and stuff like that, nobody wants to hear about that. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think on the contrary, I mean, I, I, I got what they were saying and I, I was totally open to it. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. So, you know, some people might just shut it off when they hear that or just not listen to it or just put it aside or fast, <laughs> fast forward it. I don't know. Sure. Um, and that's fine. That's not a big deal. But what I wanted to get into about him um, and now you is that if it's part of your life and it has directed you into this, what you're doing with your conservation and the good that you're trying to do. I think it's relevant, mm. you know what I mean? Regardless of what you believe. Yeah. Oh, he's a holy roller, you know, whatever, however they want to, whoever wants to put it. I was there too. I wasn't before I got saved. I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't. So here's a, a difference between it. Like a, um, I've been to a Christian church mm. where people are like very animated, right? And I don't know if your church is like this, but a lot of getting up and clapping and singing and like almost like borderline Southern Baptist type of stuff. Right. Um, and then contrast that to Catholic upbringing where we had the pews, you came in quiet and my, my dad is slapping me on the back of the head. If I do something Mm -hmm. wrong and just shut up and sit there, get, you know, when it's time to pray, you get down on, you pull down the, the, the the stuff for your, what what you call that, but kneel Mm -hmm. down and then stand up and then you do the hymns, then you're out. 
you know <laughs> and then you know the the Catholic, the Christian church it's like very animated I've never I hate to say it I've never felt comfortable in that environment because mm-hmm. I grew up differently I yeah. just grew up with a faith where you pray and, and you know and you have your relationship with God and then that's it but I think religion whether you're religious or not let's say you never even brought up being being a Christian mm-hmm. you're still a hundred percent respected by me I don't care mm-hmm. right but I feel like it's it's a relevant conversation, and I hate the fact that when it is brought up, and I get a, I do get a call like that though. It's like, oh, stay away from that stuff. It's just it's uh, it's off putting. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know, I you know I just wanted to mention that. I don't, yeah. I don't know where that goes, but well, I think it's it's interesting, and I think that the way things seem to be heading, it is so easy to get polarized and to, you know, focus on, okay, who's my in-group and then let's not trust anybody else. And I think, you know, you can look at, okay, well, is it social media that's accentuating that? Is it, you know, other things? There's probably a bunch of things that happen to that, but what does it look like for us realizing we live in a really diverse country and there is a whole range of different backgrounds and beliefs and actions. And, you know, kind of like you just described, even within a given, you know, within Christianity, there's all kinds of different expressions of what that looks like. Sure. How can we kind of figure out how to agree to disagree well, saying, you know, we don't necessarily have to agree on everything for us to be able to get along and to work well together and to partner. And I mean, that happens all the time in the fields that I'm in. You know, the vast majority of my closest coworkers don't necessarily share my faith. And that is in no way a reason that I shouldn't work well with them and that I'm not able to. And so I think we could do better as a society at figuring out how do we work well across difference and respect other people and, you know, their beliefs doesn't mean we have to, you know, acknowledge that we totally agree with everything they do that might not, but to work together well, to value the individual and where they're coming from and to say, okay, well, where are the shared touch points where, you know, we agree on these things. In a lot of cases, we agree on a lot more than we disagree on. And so yeah. where can we say, yeah, we agree on this. And even if we hold maybe strong differences in other areas, those might be important. Maybe we have those conversations, but I hope that doesn't keep us from being able to work well together. And it has been interesting to see how that's come up, even as we've had, you know, here at TWS had kind of discussions about different interfaith approaches to conservation, reaching out across different faith groups to people who aren't in a particular faith group. How can we use that as one way to help bring people together around these questions and connect with people on conservation since it is so important to many people and yet also be able to connect with people for whom that's not their motivating factor and that's not what they tend to resonate with. And we want to do that well in, or I guess I should say, I want to do that well, you know, in all those circumstances. Yeah. And as you're talking, I, I, there's some parallels between uh, people who um, don't hunt, like from a hunter standpoint. I'm always thinking like a hunter, I don't, just because I am, I guess. I, but, I, you know, from a non-hunting standpoint and then a non-religious standpoint as well. And I'm, what I mean by that is it's not that they're interconnected, but there's this, this tug and war that you, that I wish that, a lot of us wish anyway, that we could get along to mm-hmm. see or agree to disagree on some things. Like, I get it. You want to, even somebody, here's a good example. The spring bear season up in, in Washington, mm-hmm. they just pulled that season. And, you know, the commissioners made a decision to take away spring bear. And there's a big bear population there, right? I'm not, I'm not technically a bear hunter. I'd like to, 
I'd like to hunt bear. You know, I'd like to see what it's like. I'd like to, you know, partake in it. If it's number one legal, if there's enough animals, if it would uh, be conducive to game management and that kind of thing, harvest it in a, all the all the all the positive things, you know, in in a humane way and, and everything. But when somebody who doesn't want quote just doesn't want to kill bears mm-hmm. for whatever reason, yeah, I just don't think that bears should be killed. Uh, and then they make that kind of decision. It's just it, it's counterintuitive to understanding, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you get my meaning. Just like somebody who says I don't believe in God, and is very strong on that point, and it overlaps into your lane, right? So the the people who don't want to hunt bears, they're on the commission, and then they they overlap into the lane of a bear hunter who a scientist clearly says that they can be managed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, through hunting and same thing with uh somebody calling me up <laughs> on the pod does do you, do you see the parallels here calling me up when somebody mentions religion on a podcast and says take that off of there it's it's almost like can you not see that like his religion is part of the reason why he's doing what he's doing can you not see that the, somebody hunting bear is doing it legally and is managing you know, the bears on the landscape, you know, the carrying capacity on the landscape and that kind of thing. I just kind of wish that we all could like, (laughs) not the Rodney King thing, we should all get along, but (laughs) almost like that, you know, I wish people could see the other side Mm. and we could, we could make decisions accordingly and just kind of honestly just get along on that, on, on some things because people that, you know, get up into higher positions, a commission is a good example of that, that has a really strong feeling on something can really hurt a lot of other people that are really trying to do good. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, you know, as we come, as we talk about conservation, I think it is super important to understand where people are coming from. And even if we don't necessarily agree to have that understanding and to kind of seek to treat people well. So, you know, earlier this year, yeah, when we were up in Ukiagvik, we met with a kind of high up oil executive and he just had an opportunity to share, to share his perspective on conservation on what we were doing on issues with conservation groups in the past on, you know, different things to help educate us about the people and their culture. And it was really great. You know, we may not see eye to eye on at the end of the day on what decision should be made in a given project, but just the humanizing effect of understanding, okay, this is where you're coming from. This is what motivates you. And this is, you know, the real humanity that you are bringing to bear here helps to, I guess I at least feel like I'm able to come with greater compassion and greater understanding for the individual. Even if we disagree, we can do so in a way that is hopefully honoring of one another and kind of lifts up the individual Mm. well. And so, you know, I think that's important in all aspects of life, including in conservation to kind of not miss out on the humanity of other people because we disagree, but to seek to honor other people even while we engage with them. Absolutely. And that plays into our politics, mm-hmm. you know, right? Um, the the commission aspect of that whole black bear thing is is a, just a sliver of that. I mean, look at our political situation in our country. You know, it's, it's part of what's happening on that. People are just refusing to uh, interact with um, somebody who doesn't agree with them. And I almost feel like there needs to be even like a an overabundance of communication mm-hmm. if, if needed. Right. I mean, you don't, you're not going to get anywhere without communicating and understanding to your point. Right. 
Right. So, man, we've gone an hour and uh, 50 minutes. That's just, it's kind of, that's, <laughs> you're almost to my, my normal two hour point. Mm. Um, I'm going to give you uh, the opportunity uh, to just say what you'd like to, to um, any of the listeners out there. There's not many yet. But say uh, the listeners that are out there about not just caribou. I mean, of course, caribou because that's what you're doing right now. But just in conservation and what we can do um, as as hunters, anglers, as uh, people who are just out there hiking, just and just love nature. What what can we do to help uh, just make this a better place for? Uh, the landscape mm-hmm. and uh, and wildlife. Yeah, thanks. No, th- and thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be able to be here and to have this conversation. And yeah, and it it really is great, even just to be reflecting back on reminders. Kind of why did I get into this? What drove that? And I think that love of learning about the natural world is probably one of the things I'd communicate is, look, if, if you're passionate for whatever reason, whatever it is that brings you to that point where you're like, yeah, I love the outdoors. I love wildlife or plants or natural landscapes or whatever it is learning about it. Maybe it's the classic scientific, you know, answer of, well, we need more knowledge. No, but you know, learn about it, spend some time out learning and experiencing being out in the land, or maybe that is at your local park. Maybe it's at a zoo. Maybe it is, you know, something else that is in your backyard and lets you connect with the natural world. And I hope that as we continue to experience those things, it does lead to that love that leads us to want to take action. And again, what that action might be is going to depend on your specific context. So it might be engaging locally in some conservation action that's happening. It might be writing to your elected official. It might be engaging in something bigger like, you know, national campaigns to protect the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, you know, but whatever it is, kind of following your passion for the outdoors and for the natural world and letting that motivate your conservation and your conversations with other people, um, I think really is key and yeah, is, is an important part of what helps to encourage and motivate me. That's awesome. Dr. Fuller, thank you so much for taking the time. And, uh, and I, I appreciate your, uh, your candor and I appreciate you sharing not just your knowledge today, but also about your personal life as well. And I, um, I think your, your voice is going to like resonate with a lot of people, whether they're, you know, uh, they just love wildlife or they're hunters or even in, in your, conversation about your faith i think uh, i think you're you have a great voice and man i wish you the best of luck in in your research not just with caribou but whatever comes up on the horizon you strike me as a type of guy that could be in uh scotland in like 10 years doing something crazy and and conserving somewhere else on this planet so man just thank you for your service it's selfless and i and i think uh i think we'll all benefit from that thanks so much jason i really appreciate it yeah Thank <laughs> you.